0: They would say and that is it with any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Now, if you're unfamiliar with David and the whole situation in front of us, there was a guy, and he was the great, 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 that he would actually, through his lineage, through his family line, through his DNA, there would come the Savior of the world, the Lord over all. And David had that promise in 2 Samuel 7 and 8. And, and with all of the things we find, we read in this, a man after God's own heart, we also find a guy who's full of flaws. And we read in this guy's life, we're roughly 1,000 B.C., so that puts us about 3,000 years ago. Really, nobody gets more press in the Old Testament than this guy. I mean, this guy just gets so much information, and God really wants us to see a man who is full of passion, who is full of life, really wants God's best, who still, though, steers that into really stupid places, finds himself in really rough situations. But David, at the end of his life, will not call himself the dragon slayer, or if you will, the giant slayer. He won't call himself the greatest king that ever lived. He will call himself the sweet psalmist. And for me, that means a lot. Because more than all of the other things that David saw and he accomplished in his life, David always saw himself as a songwriter, as a guy, if you will. I mean, today we might say a guy with his guitar sitting there and just telling God how much he loves him. From the days that he was just a shepherd to the days that he would be king, he was a psalmist. Now, because of that, it's easy, of course, and I try to be careful, but it's easy for me to sort of project. I look at David and I would say, what would that look like for me? When I look at this situation where we're looking at the life of David in Second Samuel, we're really looking at, if you will, the narrative of his life, the story, his biography. We get in the Psalms, if you will, we kind of get the what and the how here, but we get the why in the Psalms. And I look and there are some differences. And as a songwriter, I look at these things and just pardon me for divulging for a second, as I like kind of developing this as we get into our lengthy text. But what's clear is, is that they're actually sort of the same psalm, sort of the same song, with some revisions. So the argument is, which one took place first? Because if I can see which one was the original, and then what the changes were, I could see then how that moves. Well, so I have to compare the two, and as I look at the two of them for what it's worth, I noticed a couple of things, and it'd be kind of important to note that in Psalm 18, Verse 49, he says, you have made me. And yet in Psalm Second Samuel 22, in this text, he says, in the same verse, you have kept me. Now, I compare those two for a, ma- for a moment, and I see in one case, he looks and says, look at what I am now. Look at what you've made me. And then I look in this verse, and he says, look at how you've kept me that. And because of that, my natural impression is this was, if you will, the revised version. Because if he looks back, and there are a couple of cases, what we'll see is in the Psalm 18, he kind of says it as you are, or I am at this moment, or I'm going to be. And then in, in here in Second Samuel, if you will, the revised version, he kind of goes and goes, well, you know what? I have been now, and I look at that, and I and it's like, I look at how I was that, but you've kept me through all of this. And I see in that the radical things, these little changes, and how that profoundly affects me. Now, as a songwriter, I look at that, and I realize there are different reasons to change lyric. And of course, that's what we're looking at is some guy's lyrics. I mean, in one case, you change it because some boss at a network somewhere decides that the song really doesn't fit. The meter needs to change, you know, change these few words, make it rhyme better or something like that, you know, make it a little more snappy, you know, and you get that from some people. Well, clearly David doesn't have that. He's king. Who's going to tell David to change his lyrics? But then there are other cases where you write something and then you look back later at that song. And I do this a lot because Psalms chronicle... Seasons in your life. I mean, we look at where we're at now and we, I mean, this brand new one that we just started singing, this almighty God you reign, that seems to be sort of the theme of where our hearts are at at the moment. And I love that we can look back a year from now if the Lord to Terry and we'd look at that and go, wow, look at where we were then. And I can see seasons where the songs were kind of like, God, help, this is a crazy time and I'm overwhelmed and I really need your love and I'm really kind of reaching out. And I see how those kind of songs, written fairly few and far between, are usually in seasons. It isn't, they kind of cluster. There's a cluster of them here and, then, and you kind of go, wow, remember what that season was like. You know, when you get songs where things are crazy and you have like, think about the things we've gone through over the last few years and songs like I Trust You have come out of that. I mean, I look back for, for the rest of our lives, as long as the Lord tarries, we'll be able to look back and go, remember that season where it's like, man, I don't, I don't really understand what's going on right now, but, but I'm going to trust you anyways. Now, when I look at that and I compare and then I think that this then is the latter version, not because some record exec, if you will, was trying to tell him to change things, but rather because David now looking back in his life and he kind of compares what he used to sing to now, he's like, you know, there's some things I really need to change. Some things I need to add, and what's interesting is that for the most part, there are less lyric in this one than there actually are in the original. Now, when you have a lot more lyric, things tend to speed up and be a little bit more intense. When things sort of slow down and get less lyrical, there's less words it tends to be more anthemic, where you kind of repeat something over and over, if you will. And you, it tends to be a little bit more slow or meditative, or you know, where now let's think about these lyrics, because let's face it. It's kind of really hard if you, you know, if you've ever looked at, for instance, rap lyric on something, you know, and you realize, I mean, you look at some songs, you look at a praise song, there might be like 12 words in the whole song and they just keep repeating. It. And then you look at rap lyric and it's like 35 pages long and he's just getting through the first verse. It's really hard to hear that's going over like this and going, oh, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm getting it. But when you get something where you're slowing down, let's just take this moment and let's sing this until it gets into our hearts and we hear ourselves singing this. Well, that's a different story altogether. And when I look at this now, this, if you will, this revised version, what I see is, I see David pulling out some lyric so that we have more time to really meditate on what's being said. Uh, So anyways, with that said, uh, if you look and keep your finger, if you will, in Psalm 18, because there's a radical way that that starts that we do not see here in this text. We do have, by the way, the same context. It says in chapter 22 verse 1 and in Psalm 18 verse 1 that David spoke the words of this song on the day that the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, we don't have a context to every song, but you you know, if you've ever seen someone live, they tend to do this sometimes. And and I personally love this. I mean, if somebody if I could listen to a whole project, I used to say album, but that doesn't work as well now, but if if I listen to someone's whole project and I don't feel like I know them better, I really don't appreciate their music as much. Now, I I could actually tell you more about an individual who has no lyric but is emotional in what they write, puts themselves and pours themselves into it, than a person who does the whole thing by math. And I realize, I'm like, well, this person's probably sort of a steady or this person probably is There's some things going on in their life or whatever uh, because it becomes therapeutic. Uh, But when I look at something with lyric and I get this, well, we have a context. And imagine, if you will, David were here to tell us about this psalm before he begins to sing it. They would say, well, let me just kind of tell you this was what was going on in my life when this song was written. And I, those are those moments I am silent and quick to listen because I really want to know, what was it that drove you to write this song? And some songs that reached me the most, to be honest, it was the context more than the song that really reached me. I'm like, wow, out of that, there's this. And I hear songs about a person, for instance, who has lost his wife and he... And he he was so comfortable. He was a recording artist, and things were going really well for him. He was rather popular. He was comfortable financially. You know, he he had a lot of popularity at the moment. The momentum was moving up for the guy. And then he loses his wife, and the whole thing tanks on him. And at that moment, he's so weak. He doesn't know what to do. He's just floored. And then he writes a song about it because in that situation, he was so weak, all he could do, all he could do was cry out to God. And if God were just, do really good things for me and I'll like you, well then how in the world would this guy cry out to God at a moment like that? But rather, because he had a relationship with God, God met him there in such a profound and intense way that he would write a song about how great it was to be weak and how he would work and strive to, to stay that way, knowing that that's where God's power is really seen. Now listen, there are times where you write songs and they're just for you. They're just for your purpose. And there are songs where God has given me in some of the craziest situations in my life. I almost, I don't know if you're aware of this, I must lost all three of my girls within a series of about six months. I mean, one daughter run over, dead and not breathing, Praise God he brought her back to life. Another one, tossing a blood in them. My wife has, in essence, what's called a branch retinal arterial. Uh, closest. What it means, in essence, is she had a stroke in her eye. It could have gone up to her head. It would have killed her. But instead, it went into her eye. She has this blind spot in one of her eyes. It's where I like to stand when I say, how do I look? Well, the reason I say this is before all of that happened, there was this, I remember God just speaking to me, and that's the beauty of having a relationship with him. And he's just like, Tony, I just want you to know, I'm going to carry you through some serious situations and I need you to trust me. Is that okay with you? Now, look, at, when God says, is it okay, and he's going to do it anyways, it's probably wise to just say it is okay. And I just remember saying, God, look, at, if this is what you're going to do, I'm going to trust you. I wrote a song called, You Can Carry Me. And no one has heard it but the Lord. It isn't like a song for anyone, my wife or children or anyone, because it's one of those songs I had to go back to when those moments would hit. And they hit one at a time. Where I'd be like, Lord, you promised me you would carry me in this, and I'm going to trust you. Interesting, I should have sung that song more in the last couple of years. Well, with that in mind, there are other songs where God obviously says, this is a song like the song we were saying tonight, uh, Almighty God. That, you, God's like, look at this is a song for us as a fellowship, at a time to document the power of a beautiful season that God is bringing us into. The reason I say that is of all the songs that God could record, and I wonder how many songs David wrote, We have 71 of them, at least in the Psalms, and God records this one in essence twice. I think it's kind of important. Now, our context, it tells us, is that David wrote this when God had delivered him from his enemies. First, he tells us from the hand of Saul, and then all of his enemies. Now, the reason I say that, and forgive me for the development, but then the rest of it moves rather quickly, except in our comparisons, is that twice in David's life, he spent running for it. He basically played Jason Bourne twice, if you think about it. David was called to be the replacement king for a guy who had really blown in. God was not telling him, telling the original guy, his name is Saul, that he should die, but that he should step off the throne because he had received his pink slip, his P45. And, uh, And with that, he didn't want to. He had no interest in stepping off the throne. So when God raises up the guy's replacement, he just wants to kill him. Now, David, in essence, is roughly 15 years old when God calls him to be the replacement king. And he had already told the other guy, I found a man better than you because he's after my own heart. And I love the fact that what God told us was what made him a better man was not his talents or his gifts or his cunning, or his charm, but what he was after. It's like, Saul, there's a lot of things you're after, but this guy's just after my heart. Let me ask you, if somebody was after your heart, what would they do? How would that change? For me personally, I would think that the things that are important to you would become important to me. And the things that are horrible to you would not be loved by me anymore. And God looks at me and goes, there's a man after my heart. So here's a fifteen year old, if you will. I mean he's still got pimples on his face, his voice is still cracking, but in all of that, he winds up stepping up, and for the next fifteen years he runs for his life because Saul wants to kill him. Now, in those fifteen years, now think about it, at a fifteen year old, if he then spends the next fifteen years of his life running from Saul, that means half of his life was spent running. In other words, if you think about it, David's life was kind of simple and pastoral, literally, because he was a shepherd, until God called him. And once God called him, everything flipped upside down. It is amazing how weird things get once you actually say yes to God. And at that point... David runs until Saul dies. And the old king, like in our own lives, giving our life to Jesus, there's an old us that needs to die and step off the throne. But unfortunately, we just kind of think, well, if we could just kind of coerce and maybe do a timeshare thing, but that old person has to die. So the person steps, well, ultimately Saul will die. But understand, in those 15 years, David had, time after time, clear opportunity to nail this guy. Now, I remind you, this guy's trying to kill him. And all of the, if you will, all of the government's trying to kill him and all of the army's trying to kill David, except for the, the band of raiders that are with this guy. That's the end of his teen years. That's his tw- that's all of his 20s. They're fairly developmental years. And at least twice, God records, where, where Saul was completely in a compromised position and David could have nailed him and he didn't. And ultimately, when Saul dies... And the enemies that would be with Saul, David could write a song like this and be like, it would, it would make a lot of sense. It was like, wow, I get where you're at, God. I get where how this sort of falls into place. But then David would do these, he would become king seven and a half years of just the southern tribes, and then, if you will, ultimately, uh, 40 years in total. You know, so that puts us at 32 and a half years for the northern ten as well. And, but in the middle of all of all, towards the end of it, David is roughly 60 years old. His son seeks to kill him. And David flees for himself, for his life again. And for a second time in his life, David is in the same situation he was before. The only this time... Well, even in the first case, David had been working in Saul's army, so he knew the guys who were trying to kill him. He may have raised them up. In the second case, they used to serve David, and now they're trying to kill him. And David has another opportunity to kill, if you will, and doesn't. Twice in his life, he could look back at something and go, you know, I really could have just gone shot on this, and I did not. Now, the reason I say that is that David will look back at his life And once he revisits that horrible moment where he's fleeing, but this time from his own son. And then his own son dies. Even though David says, please don't kill him. And then all of the enemies that were with him, I mind you, many of which were from the family of Saul. He could go and revisit that psalm again. Remember the last time I was playing Jason Bourne, fleeing for my life, just trying not to die and when that ended, the song I wrote, and now here's, here he is at the end of his life now. He's in his late 60s. He'll die at 70. He's in his late 60s, maybe at this point 69, and you know, just about to die, so that puts us there, and or right at early 70. And he kind of goes and revisits the song again. And he goes, wow, remember the last time that happened? I wrote this. And now here I am again at that same place where the dust is settling. And for the first moment, and for quite a while, I'm not looking over my shoulder. I'm not afraid of someone killing me in my sleep. I'm not at that place where someone... And I don't know how many of you, anyone's ever really legitimately tried to kill you. I know a couple of you. It's the case. I know how unfun that is. No doubt. No, we're we're not just talking about someone that's just like, I want to kill you, you know, or, you know, they're drunk and they're just, you didn't, you know, I don't know, you sat down and they thought the seat should be theirs. But I'm talking about somebody who really they know your name, they know your name, they know where you work or whatever. You know, that's a very different situation. But when that ends, there's this weird moment where you kind of wake up and you're like, wow, um, this day's is going to be very, very different, and you don't even know how to live at the beginning of that. I mean, you don't know how to look at that and go, wow. Oh, I don't have to look over my shoulder. I can, my walk can be different. My, my, The way that I do things, I could visit different places that I couldn't before. It's a very weird thing. And the reason I say that is David now writes, if you will, takes, pulls this psalm out one more time and he starts to to jot a few notes, pull out a few lyrics, uh, shorten them up. But what the most important part is I start to look at this is the first verse that David wrote in Psalm 18, did you notice doesn't appear here in Second Samuel 22? In Psalm 18, and again, flip there if you would, just for the moment if you would, David starts the psalm. And I, I mean, it's such a powerful thought. He starts it by saying, oh, I love you. And I look at that and I think, wait a minute. To the chief musician, tells us it's corporate. Psalm uh, of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke the words uh, to the Lord. These words, song in the day that the Lord had delivered him from the hand of his enemies and the hand of Saul, and he said, "I will love you, O Lord, my strength." And then I look and I go, why doesn't that appear here in Second Samuel when he revises it? Because in between the two was a massive failure, a moral failure. And all I can tell is, is in opinion, I look and I see that David's going to really, the things that God is, David will certainly recount, and even add a couple, to be honest. But He's like, remember when I just told God, I would love you with everything? And now he looks back and he's like, did I do that? Did I really do it the way that I said I would? And I can't help but think of Peter, Who spoke on the day, on the night of Jesus' arrest and said, Jesus, I am willing to die for you tonight. I'll never betray you. I'll never forsake you. And Jesus, knowing he's going to bail on him, looks at him and he doesn't want to get tight and he doesn't want to freak out on him. He just looks and says, Hey, you are going to fall tonight. It's promised in Scripture. And if it's in Scripture, it's not a lie. He goes, But you are going to be restored, Peter before the rooster crows twice tonight you're going to deny me that you even know me three different times I wonder what it would be like to be Peter and to think I, I genuinely believe and probably you do too that Peter really believed when he was saying these things oh come on and we know that that moment when we're full of conviction and we're so convinced we, do, we mean this so much. I'm never going to do that again. Oh my goodness, I'm finally going to go out and do this thing. And like health clubs bank on it in December. You know that. I'm finally going to get into shape. Well, good, we'll sell you our membership because you'll never be here anyways by January. And you see that happen over and over. Well, get the idea. David kind of has that thing and he looks back and he's like, God, I'd love to say now as I revise this, I really have loved you like you deserve. But, but to be honest, it really isn't about me. And I don't, I I haven't loved you like I wish I could have. And I'll be honest, I look back, I became a Christian at 19. And I mean, for the next few years, I lived very stupidly until I, I, to be honest, until I actually opened up the Bible and realized God's call on my life and what that, how different that was for me making it up as I went along. And I was like, God, I'm going to give you everything. And I cried out, God, if you just show me who you are, I'll give you every bit of who I am. And I really wish that I could say that I've done that. But you know, instead of just saying, well, glad I did that. I can look back at moments and say that was a good moment. That was it right there. And in David's life, interesting, the two moments he could see as success, to be honest, were the moments when he was running for his life and he really could have taken vengeance into his own hands, but he didn't the very thing Jesus would do, by the way, with all the power of heaven at his disposal, and still die on the cross for us? And David wouldn't say, look, at him, I'm innocent and everything, but I could, he could look back at these moments and go, you know, in these moments I really didn't stray. Could have, but he didn't. Well, with that completely lengthy introduction and 51 verses to go, we better jump in, yeah? Well, it tells us here, David spoke the words of this song on the day in which the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies, from the hand of Saul. In verses 2 and 3, David kicks into this with a declaration of nine things that the Lord is. And he says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. Now, please don't miss this because now I look back and there are certain things that we've sung or we've written or we've said before. And I look back and I realize that a different word takes actually the emphasis later on in life. Now again, I don't. I'd like to think I'm older, but not old, if that makes sense. But I've been around the block. I've been a Christian now for more than five years. Obviously, if I got saved at 19, six years. Just kidding. But but I look at this and I realize David recognizing fleeing for his life and then seeing it finally come to pass after Saul and those words rock. And fortress. I mean, selah, matsud, palat, tsur. the word for rock or cliff or strength. Chaza, the word to take refuge and flee for safety. Magin, the shield. Keren the horn. Yeshav, deliverance, like Jehoshua, Jesus. Misgav, the word for defense or strong tower. I can see those. The first time I'm going, wow, God, you really have been those things to me. But this time around, I realize and maybe this is just me pouring myself into this, I look and I realize the one word that he keeps repeating isn't those terms because they keep changing. The one term is my. Did you notice that? And here's the difference, beloved. Later on in life, what you start to realize is these concepts that we preach, these things we read in scripture, really do become ours. And I realize, okay, wow, I, I have been shielded but it's more than just I've been shielded. You've been my shield now. You've been my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. And understand, this is the difference between Jesus and everything else. And we can do this inadvertently, and it's so crazy that we would do this, that we would rather be theologians where we could talk about God being all of these things ideologically instead of God being that to us. It's like being an expert in food, but starving to death. How crazy would that be? And I see people do this. Back in the book of Exodus, and it is important to note the movement, ultimately we know it is Passover. God creates the first one. That ultimately, when the lamb is slaughtered, the blood is put on the lentil of the doorpost, and the firstborn uh, would die, but he doesn't die because the lamb is slaughtered in his place. And, And when God starts, he says, I want you to take a lamb. You look around, you pick from your flock, you take a lamb. And then from that lamb, it becomes the lamb. If that lamb, if the lamb is, if your family, for instance, is too small to actually you know, constitute an entire one and the family next to you is also you know, small, well, then why don't you guys split it? Take the lamb and do that. But ultimately, it goes from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb must be. Can I say... This is our walk with God. We start and going, well, you know, and especially in the world we live in, well, he's kind of a God, Jesus is kind of a savior, he's kind of a, you know, there's all these other guys. And that's where we started. It's like Jesus is one of the things at the salad bar. We kind of pop up and we're like, I'll have a little, but what you realize is everything that you look for, I mean, you know, like I go to Brazilian barbecues and I, that's like almost a confession of gluttony. And. You know what? You know that they could fill you up with all of these other things so they don't have to give you all the meat, you know? But you kind of look and you get hungry and you kind of walk around it a few times. And I walk around those things and there's like a hundred different things to choose from. And then you're like, hmm, I'd like something. And I really, sooner or later, you just kind of find yourself at the same bowl. And I realized, let's just say you took every religious leader and you put them all around, in essence, like a salad bar. And you're like, well, what am I looking for? I'm looking for forgiveness. Okay, that's the Jesus bowl. I'm looking for comfort. Oh, that's the Jesus bowl. I'm looking for hope. Oh, that's the Jesus bowl. I'm looking for power. Oh, that's the Jesus bowl. And you realize, no matter how many times you walk around, it's only through Jesus. And you say, like, whoa, what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a maniac. Mm, that's not going to be the Jesus Bull. I'm looking for something that's just political so we can yell and scream, mm, that's not the political that's not the Jesus Bull. I'm looking to kill people in the name of God. Mm, that's not the Jesus Bull. But you're like, But what I want and what I need, my rock, my fortress, deliver, God of my strength, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Those are all the Jesus Bull. And that's what David discovered in a world where everyone's bowing to everything, and you're like, well, I'd love to keep my options open. you know why we get married? Because what we found is, like for my case, my wife's name is Suzanne. We've been married 27 years, which obviously means I've been married longer than I've been alive. Well, sorry, we know where liars go. Uh, but I realized in the end of it, all the things that I had hoped in a wife were being found in the same bowl. It was the Suzanne bowl. And it's like, well, it's foolish to start trying to take my tongs and start looking for other bulls because it's all in one place. And there's the sweetness in that. And then the Lord's like, what are you looking for that isn't found in me? But what's interesting is this is one of the very few places where David actually adds something to the song. And that is my refuge and my savior. Remember in the beginning, David's like, oh, I'm going to love you. Wow, I'm going to love you. And actually, David's like, you know, in the end of it all, you're really my escape and you're my only hope. David went from a declaration of his own passion, in essence, to a declaration of his complete reliance. He's like, God, without you, I am so over. And notice they're all warfare terms. Rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, horn. That's the idea of horn and calling the army together. Stronghold, refuge. And because of that, he says, verse 4, I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The first time in Psalm 18, could he have really imagined the depth of this statement? Because at that point, his enemy was Saul. At that point, his enemy was the army of Saul. At that point, the enemy were those who the, that served Saul. But after, I mean, in the midst of David fleeing, there would be David lying in the land of Nob, and he'd realize, well, I'm the enemy too. And then there would be David getting comfort, and in his comfort, he would get Bathsheba, he would take this married girl, married to his bodyguard, for goodness sakes, and he'd impregnate her. And what point does David go, you know, and you know this, you know this, that all the enemies of the world that we'd love to blame, I mean, my brother who's a pastor as well, and he's actually my pastor, he would he'd say, you know, I think the devil could go on holiday, and <laughs> we wouldn't even know it for days, because I have enough problems inside me personally that... It's not like I can blame him for everything. And David gets to this point where he's like, Because God is rock and fortress and deliverer and shield and stronghold and refuge and savior, the God of my strength and the horn of my salvation, because God is that, and because God does, he saves me from all that violence. Therefore, I'm going to trust him. You know, in trusting him, I'm going to call. And because I'm going to call on him, I'll be rescued. So then David then reviews God's tracks record in retrospect when he really needed to call upon the Lord. Verses 5-7, he says, The waves of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, Sheol's death or hell surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God. Now, interesting, this is almost exactly word for word, Psalm 18, except one word. And that is the word in verse 5, the mavit that we have here for waves, was actually pangs or pains. And I realized that David, if you will, I mean, if we think about it, that was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. David, 30 years ago, you know, would look and go, you know, what a pain it was to run from Saul. What a pain it was. What a discomfort. And then David looks now, and there's a difference when it's your son trying to kill you. And he's like, and I bet you know this feeling. David looks and he's like, you know, it was, it was like I was drowning. It was like I got to that point. Now, I don't know if, if any of you ever actually spent time in the water where you weren't really sure you were going to make it to safety. I have on more than one occasion and I'm stupid enough to go back out there. They call it surfing. But there is this place where you're like, I'm so tired but I have to keep paddling and because of that I can't just hold my breath and float because I'm panting just to stay up and tread water. And what's worse is, according to this, it tells us, notice in verse 6, the snares of death confronted me. Snares of trap. In California, there are kelp beds. Now, I don't know if you know what kelp is. You make sushi out of it. It's kind of seaweed. But it grows. They call them kelp forests. And it, they grow, you know, we're talking 10, 15 meters out of the ground. I mean, they become really big. But there are certain seasons where they have a thing called red tide. And red tide... Uh, comes what happens is sort of this red algae kind of comes in and it really makes everything kind of sticky and gooey. Not a real good time to surf. It gets in your eyes. That's a little unpleasant. Um, but I just remember being out there on one of those days, pedaling out because the waves looked good. It was kind of a cool thing. And I got to this place where the where this big set was coming in, and it kind of this guy kind of came in and he they call it leash pulling. They want a position and they pull your leash to kind of get you out of the way. It's really not very nice. But it put me then in the danger zone and I got pitched. The wave was starting to break, and it threw me, and that wasn't the problem. I hit my chin on the board, no big deal, but when I, when I went down, my ankle wrapped around some of this kelp, and now I was stuck, and it not only wrapped around my ankle, it wrapped around the leash, so now I was like, what in the world am I going to do? Now I'm in a really rough place, because it, isn't, it doesn't matter how strong I am, or how, much I'm, how good of a swimmer, or any of that, the bottom line is, unless I get free from this, I'm dead, and the reason I say that is there are times in life that's what you feel like. Where it's not just like no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I paddle, no matter what the case is, just bam, another wave comes down. And then I'm getting up and bam, another wave's coming on. And it's like, God, you've got to get me free from this. And that's what David says. He goes, look, you've been my refuge. You've been my safe place. You've been all of that. And as I look back in my life, there were moments where I was just drowning. I was drowning. And I was not only drowning, I was trapped. There was no way I was going to get out of this. So I called for help. And at that moment, I need somebody that is strong enough to, that the waves don't intimidate them. Someone that knows well enough the problem to deliver me from it. So he says in verses 7 to 21, God's response. He heard my voice from his temple And my cry entered his ears, a little longer in Psalm 18, the earth shook and trembled the foundation of the heavens were quaked by the way he'll tell us back in Psalm 18 was the foundations if you will it was um, the foundations quaked of the hills here he says the foundations of heaven David looks now and he realizes this came from a much bigger place and they were shaken because he was angry smoke went up from his nostrils devouring fire from his mouth coals were kindled by it he bowed the heavens also or bowed if you wish and came down with darkness under his feet which tells us darkness clearly was not a problem he rode upon a cherub and flew he was seen upon the wings of the wind he made darkness canopies around him in other words darkness was was not in any way an impediment to him dark waters thick clouds and sky from the brightness before him coals of fire were kindled in other words God just was so bright things caught fire because of it the Lord thundered from heaven the Most High uttered His voice; He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and He vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered, and at the rebuke of the Lord, at the bl- at the blast of his nostrils. Now, don't miss this. This is God being large and in charge. I mean, here I am again, back in this place, my ankle is tied to something that is more than a story long and now wrapped around my leash and ankle and I need to get out of this thing. God didn't just kind of dive down at a good moment, kind of untie me, okay, slugger, go ahead and swim, pack, jump on your board and get into the shore until you can catch your breath. This was God and he went, boom! And the whole water just went, whoosh! And understand, when David was drowning, the water was nowhere near him anymore. God went, that was it. And he was so strong in what he did, that God, it isn't even like he reached down and he pulled anything or screamed anything. God breathed out of his nose and the water fled. And as he started to come down, the darkness fled. And here was David being covered in the dark. Here was David being, was drowning. And God just went, and the whole thing just opened up on him. See the power and the majesty in that for a moment. And let me ask you again, go around your salad bar and find out which other bowl gives you that. And then he goes from that to notice what it says in verse 17 through 21. Then he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. In other words, they kicked me when I was down. But the Lord was my support. He also brought me into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. With the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Now, don't miss this, because I immediately get distracted by the last verses, and I miss the first few. Here's God, and it's like I'm drowning, and I'm getting pulled under. The waves are going, bla, 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 you know, and I'm like, oh, this is not good, and it's getting darker, and it's getting uglier, and God goes, bla, 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 and boom, everything opens up, and there's this power, but then there's this gentleness, in the way he deals with me. He took me, and he drew me out, He didn't yank me out, though he could have. You know who would yank you out? Somebody who's intimidated by the waves, too. Somebody who knows the danger of those seas. And, you know, when you've ever had to be in a situation like that, we've actually, as a lifeguard, i have had to actually be on the other side of that, rescuing somebody out. And And I know what it's like where you jump in, your heart's racing, and you do not want to be in there either. Clearly that guy was a good swimmer, and he's down, how, you know, it's like if you don't get in and get out quick, you're going to be another guy they need to rescue. But God is not like that. God isn't like, well, we better get in and well, let's just get you out. God's like, whew, and everything opens up, and God's like, all right, now come here. And he draws me out. And he delivered me. And here's my enemy surrounding me and trying to drown me. And God's like, let's get you out of this. And he goes, you know why he did this? Because he delighted in me. In other words, God would look at me and his heart would race. And he would see me as something that he so loves and so treasures. Now let me ask you find that on your salad bowl. As you go around the salad bar, find that at your buffet. Which one delights in you? Before I became a Christian, I did not want to be a Christian seemed so western and I like exotic things. So I read every other book I could. And there was no other book about a God who delighted in me or wanted me or would pay my price or die for me. There are others where it's like if you do all the things, maybe, maybe you will find mercy. And this one says, when you hated me, I loved you. Find that in another book. And he goes, you know, Here's a God who didn't just pull me out. And they going, let's get back into this. He pulled me out. and He set me in a broad place. This place where all of a sudden, all those things that were closing in and drowning, it's like the Lord just took me and he put me on shore. And he took me so far that I can't even hear the water anymore. He's like, son, you're safe. And he goes, look at, He recompensed me according to my righteousness. My righteousness? But what about Bathsheba? What about the horrible things that ensued because of that? Well, understand what David is speaking about are the enemies that surrounded him on two different occasions: Saul and his army and his son and his army. And in both cases, David could have taken those matters into his hands, and he could have tried to fight those waters. He could have tried to fight that drowning, but instead, he's like, "You don't want God? I have to be rescued." I'm not going to try to tell you I'm strong and I need a little help. I need rescue here. And that's what he added, at the remember, at the beginning of this in his revision. And I realize, often, God's rescue is simply waiting for us to throw our hands up and ask. And I know this. As a lifeguard, I know what it's like when you see a guy and he's struggling. You don't jump in when he's struggling because he's looking for help at that moment. You jump in when he's willing to surrender himself to your rescue because otherwise he's a threat to you. He'll try to pull you down and use you as a flotation device. So yeah, he'll make it. You die. Good idea. Or why don't you just surrender to what I'm doing and we'll both get to shore. We'll both be living by the time this is done. That's done. That's win-win. And there are times where it's like, God, I just need a little help. Just kind of come in. God's like, you know, at this point, you'll just try to use this to glorify your own strength. God's like, what I really want is for you to to let me rescue you. And I will if you let me. But God is a gentleman. So he doesn't want to argue with you over it. And David reviews those times when he did it right. See, David hasn't done everything right. But he's like, in this situation where the enemy had surrounded me, I could have fought, I could have tried, and David was a warrior. But David recognized what Jacob had to learn when he became Israel as a name change. And that is the greatest victory with God will always be in your surrender. You don't have to earn anything with him or it wouldn't be grace. So I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not not wickedly departed from my God. For all of his judgments went before me and for his statutes, I didn't depart from those. I was blameless before him in these situations. Yes, he was. And I kept myself from iniqu- for my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my rightness, according to my cleanness of my eyes, or I'm sorry, in his eyes. Psalm 18 would use the word sight. And as long as David, please hear me, as long as David let God fight these battles, he would see victory. Hey, in the situations we've gone through over the last few years, I'm a natural fighter. It is really easy for me to jump in the ring and want to take it down, whatever it is. And when, uh, to me, I've learned through the years that it takes greater strength not to fight than to fight. And there are times where I'm like, Lord, please, I'm ready, I'm ready. It's sort of like, you know, you ever watch those goofy tag team wrestling things, and the guy's like kind of has his hand out, and the guy's kind of in something, and he's like, just tag me, just tag me, I'll go in. And I'm like, there is if God's ever on the ropes. I'm like God, come on, just tag me, man, just tag me. I'm so ready. And you can see God going it's like to James and John, and want to call fire down on the Samaritans. You don't even know what spirit you're of. You want to kill these people, and I want to save them. And there are times where even people close to me are like, "Why don't you just nail that and go after that?" And they are like, "Because God has told me not to." Because believe me, it would be a lot easier. And David looks at this and he's like, you know what? There's some things I've learned is that you have no problem revealing yourself to people in the condition they're in. Look at verses 25. I'm sorry, 26 to 28. With the merciful, well, you'll show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you'll show yourself pure. With the devious, you'll show yourself shrewd. With those that are really just trying to sneak around and get whatever they want, don't expect God to be overly giving to somebody that's using that to hurt people. You will save the humble. For the humble, you are their savior. But your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. And David's like, I've been around the block a few times now. I've watched you bring down strong men who had a haughty look. Yet to David, he's everything he needs. Verse 29 but you're my lamp, O oh Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Interesting. David would say in Psalm 18, you will light my lamp. Listen, listen to the difference. You will light my lamp. That's where David was 30 years ago. Now David's like, you know what? You are my lamp. I mean, back then I'm like, oh, I just just give me a little spark, God. I'll take care of it. And then you realize, you know what? I didn't have anything... The only, you have, and this is, please hear me, because we're, crazily enough, though we're halfway, or more than halfway through, we're near the end of this, because it picks up. Please hear me. One of the most radical things that changed my whole walk with the Lord was when I realized the difference between you give and you are. Because in the beginning of my walk with the Lord, it was like, God, just give me, give me peace. God, give me joy. God, give me love. God, give me hope. As if God were like the eternal store, and I was banking up to it. And then ultimately, what I had to learn is, God, you are my peace. You are my joy. And the difference was God was not something I kind of dropped by on a drive-thru, picked it up and left. God was the thing that if I really wanted joy all the time, all I needed to do was be with him because the whole purpose behind God in his heart is to be, have a relationship with you. So why would he want to just give it to you and then have you walk away from it? Well, what he really wants is just to be with you. I mean, he didn't send Jesus to die for you just so that Jesus could give you stuff. It was to redeem you so you could have a relationship with him. And because God is, David can. Verse 30, by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. And you get the idea, David's like, you know what? There's no enemy I have to fear now. Because God's way and word are flawless. Well, I can trust that he's the shield and all I need. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. And the idea of that is you can really trust God's word. He's a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? So you run around your buffet, and what you find is the only one who's really God is the Lord. Who is a rock except our God? You want a rock? Some place you can find comfort and security and stability and safety and hope? Run around that buffet as many times as you want. You're going to only find it in one bowl. And that's what David says. You know, I've run around that thing a lot. By this point, I mean, David's about to die. And he looks and he's like, you know what? One thing I have concluded in the end is everything is in the same bowl and that bowl is you, God. Everything. So he says, God is my strength. And power, God went from arming me, and that's the way it was in Psalm 18. Remember the idea is you light my lamp, and but now you are my lamp. Back in Psalm 18, it was like, God, you arm me. In other words, you arm me with strength to, God, you are my strength. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like a deer sits them on high places. Now, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, and we definitely want to do one of those trips soon, what you will find is, is that we go to these places like in Getty where there's rocks are super steep. And as a matter of fact, there are places where you're like, I can't believe there's no railing here. And I understand, I'm the guy that jumps off the bridge maybe if there's a band attached to my ankles. And, and I mean, I've, I remember when people are like, who wants to go cliff diving? I just ran off of it hoping there was water at the bottom. I remember those days. So when I look and go, oh, that's you know, that's like 25 stories and there's like, there's nothing. And you look at that and you realize, you're at the bottom of that and you look at them and you're like, wow, we were way up there. And it's like one false step and that would have been it. And then you see these, these cool Ibex, they have these giant horns and they're, they're like these majestic stag things and they're like, click, 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 click. And they just kind of pop down this thing. And I don't even, it's, it's like they have suction cups on their hooves and they're almost completely sideways. I'm like, how does he do that? And the reason I say this, when you look, and a matter of fact, Engeti means, in essence, the, the rock of the wild deer. And he's like, you look at that and you're like, what in the world? That defies science. And David says, that's what you did with me. It's like, I don't even know how I can walk on this. But you gave it to me anyways. I can tell you in his I mean, I don't even understand how we're still here in this country for a thousand plus reasons. And one of them is we do the math of what we get. And then, and understand, we don't charge you, obviously. We don't ask anything of you. That all comes from America. But we do that math and we do the bills. And we're like, that doesn't work out in the math. And God goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's somehow it always happens. And I realize, and it's like, forgive me for using such an example, but it's just one of those moments where it's like a cliff. And there we are walking on the side of it. And we're like, I don't know. I don't get how we do this. He goes, so that my arms can, bow, can bend a bow of bronze. And the idea is if you've ever had to actually put a string on a, a bow, you realize there's a specific way to do it now because they get, you know, we're in England. Everything has a rule. But, you know, certain you can't just sort of step on it and do it. There's, but it's like you realize that the more weight and tension, on of course, the, the farther this thing goes. And he's like, but I can't even imagine. It's like, here, here's one of metal you're like, sure, no problem, I'm just going to kind of bend this thing. And David's like, man, you are my strength. Now you give me strength at this point. I realize now, you know, as I'm about to, as I get old enough, I look back and I'm like, you know what? I mean, you can bend anything you want. You bent the heavens to come down. You chased away darkness. A bow of bronze isn't a problem for me anymore. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. Hear that. You know, what made, you know in the end of it all, you know what's really lifted me up? Not your might and your powers. Or that don't mess with me. I'm a man of God, man. Don't mess with me. And the end, it's like, you know, your gentleness. You've enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. So I've pursued my enemies. I've destroyed them. Neither did I turn back until they were destroyed and have destroyed them and wounded them. Here's the crazy part. David didn't fight, but he destroyed his enemies. Did you get that? Do you know how it happened? Because when God does it, he does it right the first time. And he said, all right, God, it's for you. I pursued my enemies, destroyed them. Neither did I turn back till they were destroyed. I've destroyed them and wounded them so they couldn't rise. They've fallen under my feet. Because you've armed me with strength for the battle. You've subdued under me those who rose against me. You did it, God, not me. You've also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hate me. They looked, but there was none to see, even the Lord, but he didn't answer them. It's like one thing to just say, God, now get me out of this, and it's another thing to call on him for who he is. And I beat them as fine as dust of the earth. I trod them like the dirt in the streets and spread them out. You've also delivered me from the strivings of people. And let's face it, would you rather have someone that's a total stranger just being wonky on you, or would you rather have somebody you love just getting really funky on you? David's like, you know, you delivered me from both. You kept me as the head. Notice here's that kept versus made me. The head of the nations, the people that I have not known shall serve me. Foreigners shall submit to me. And as soon as they hear, they obey me. The, the foreigners fade away. They am frightened from their hideouts. Oh, and this leads David to praise. He ends it by going, you know, I can't review this without falling on my knees and going, God, you are awesome. In whatever way that works for you. For David, he says it this way. God, you live. Not you lived or you did really cool things, but you live now. Blessed be the rock. Blessed, let God be exalted. The rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me, which means that God is the ultimate avenger. It's right here. And for that, we should marvel. All right. And subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You will also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man and therefore. Now, you notice David looks to the future. He goes, I look back and you've delivered me. I look back, you haven't just given me strength, you've been my strength. You haven't just lit my lamp, you've been my light. You haven't just, you know, given me a rock to throw. At this point, he's like, you know, you've been the rock I hide in. You've been the one thing that's kept me safe. And therefore, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to praise my brains out. Because therefore, I'm going to give thanks to you, O Lord, even among people who don't even know who in the world you are, the Gentiles. And all the Gentiles are, are people who aren't Jewish. And sing praises to your name. By the way, I want you to recognize this verse does not exist in Psalm 18. This is what David adds. David says, I just want you to know because you've been this, and you've been this over and over and over again, oh, I just can't help it. I just want to praise you. I just want to praise you. you know, among even people, I'm not going to be quiet among people. like Shh, Don't talk about Jesus around here. If you wear a cross and it's not blasphemous, then you better put it away. And it's like, you know what? I can't help it at this point. Man, if you knew all the things God has done in my life, and I know in the future you'll still do it, he'll still do it. So why in the world should I be afraid of who I praise God in front of? So I'm going to praise him even in front of the Gentiles. I'll sing praises to his name because he's the tower of salvation to his king. and He shows mercy to his anointed, to David, and not just to me, but to my kids. I'm going to tell you, if God had gave me the choice today and said, look it, I will kill you slowly today, but your children will serve me for the rest of their life, I'd say, when do we start? i want is my kids to follow i want them to know this god the god that doesn't just make us talk about politics the god that doesn't just like well we have standards and these are our standards you know we're going to carry a sign because we disagree with somebody but this is a god who so delivered me when i have no way out of this when i was so helpless when i was so guilty when i was so foolish when i was so my own worst enemy And God went, boom! And he opened it all up and he's like, come here. You're mine now. How do I not praise God for that? And I look around and I see people curse him. Isn't it amazing when you hear Jesus' name out in public, you assume it's more blasphemous? Isn't it true? Where are the Christians saying his name? You know what that means? That means the rest of the world is trying to run around that bowl and throw things in it to make it less appealing. Because if they were really honest, they would know everything we need is found in that same place. And that's what David's discovered. As we go to prayer, he moves to the end from this. He went from God gives me to God is. And as I walk with the Lord, I start to realize He is everything I need. He doesn't just give me everything I need. He is everything I need. Have you said yes to him? Have you said yes to this God? The God who's so personally involved in your life, he knows the struggles, he knows the traps, he knows when you feel like you're drowning and you're helpless, and you're just trying to ask God to sort of pitch in a floaty, and God instead is going, I want to rescue you, but you've got to humble yourself and let me. You're like, well, man, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. The one thing every one of us can do is surrender. Surrender. Not all of us are strong enough to fight anything. But the one thing we all can do is throw our hands up and come out with our hands up and say, God, I surrender. If you haven't done that, I want you to know Jesus died on the cross because you were drowning in your guilt, filth and shame like me. But he paid the price on the cross. He volunteered and paid the price on the cross so that it all could be paid just like scripture promised. And he was buried just like scripture promised. On the third day, he rose again so that we could say, my God lives. And if he lives, then I'm not talking to a guy who died for me 2,000 years ago that had best intentions. I'm talking to a living Lord who wants a relationship with me with every breath I breathe. And he wants one with you too. And he's just asking for permission if you have said yes, may tonight when you put your head on your pillow, God review the deliverances He has wrought in your life. Things that you may have sung or read or thought before in your life that now have a deeper meaning because of what you've walked through. That you tomorrow would wake up and praise Him among the Gentiles. That your mouth would be so full of praise for the name of Jesus not just the concept of Jesus or the church of Jesus, but his name, so that people start to ask, what is it you are talking about? Or more likely, who is it you are talking about? And what in the world do you mean by that? And you're like, well, we could walk around this buffet as many times as you want, but I want you to know, whatever you're looking for, I'm sure you could find it in this one spot. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful psalm. And I thank you, Lord, for the depth of David's heart in it, but even more so for the radical experiences David has had where somewhere in the beginning he leaned on his own strength and asked for your help and then would find that his own strength would fail him again and again to the point where he would fail miserably. But somewhere in all of that he has to go and pivot from God help me to God you are. Without you, God, there's no strength without you. There's no light without you. There's no life without you. There's no hope without you. There's no any of those things we need. So God, tonight, please, for those who have called upon your name, fill our mouths with praise for the realization of the radical things you've brought us through. Not just to go back and go, wow, what a horrible time that was but to watch the fact that we're not there. Why do we want to keep revisiting that moment for the pain of it when you've delivered us out of it? But rather to rejoice in the fact that you've delivered us as our rescuer, the rock of our salvation, our refuge, our rock, our fortress, our shield. And I pray that when we set our heads on our pillows tonight, that you would remind us the great things you delivered us from, not in condemnation, but rather as ammunition for celebration, that tomorrow our lips would praise you among people we've never praised your name before in front of. And that you would bring harvest. And I pray right now in this room, if there be, or within the sound of this voice, if there be anyone who has not accepted the gift of Jesus, tonight that they would pray this prayer. And if that's you tonight and you know there's a choice to be made, I'm going to pray a prayer. Listen. And if you agree at the end, give me an amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. That's my prayer now. I claim that for myself. And here's the prayer. God, without you, I'm guilty. God, without you, I'm dead in relationship with you. But you so loved me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for all of my filth, all of my guilt, all of my shame. And because of that, would be a fool to try to pay for what you've already paid for and when he died for my sins on that cross just as your scripture promised my bill was paid and just like scripture promised he was not only buried but on the third day he rose again so that i could say the lord lives blessed be my rock may the god of my salvation be exalted and in that now i pray that you would receive my offering of myself. I don't ask you to come and help me. I ask for you to rescue me. I ask for you to be my life, to be my hope, to be my light. And in that now, be my strength. I hand myself to you. Give me the relationship with you that you created me to have in the first place. I hand you me, in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard us tonight. Cement that in our hearts and set us alive and on fire for you, God, in the best of ways. As we commit this week, ourselves, our lives to you. Lord, may the words we sing, may the meditations in our heart that contemplate you and your goodness, may they have deeper and deeper meaning with each day. And God, I pray. May we finally conclude in our hearts that what we really need, no matter how many times we want to walk around the buffet, the only place, the only bowl we need to reach in is you. So, we're yours. Jesus, in your name. Amen.